But around the world, there's growing concern about new satellite images that appear to show activity at a North Korean nuclear test site. Tension on the Korean peninsula has increased since President Donald Trump threatened to act against North Korea's continued missile tests and nuclear ambitions. If left on its current trajectory, the regime will ultimately succeed in fielding a nuclear-armed missile capable of threatening the United States homeland. Does the president have a red line when it comes to North Korea that if they cross it, they will bring about some kind of military response from the U.S.? Welcome to Got Science, the podcast from the Union of Concerned Scientists. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today's episode is part one of a two-part conversation about North Korea with Dr. David Wright. And be sure to stick around for the end of our podcast when we'll hop into the time machine for a brief look into science history. Since the beginning of the year, North Korea has been in the news more and more. There's been an increase in missile launch tests as of today's recording, there have been seven tests with 10 missiles launched, and we expect there'll be more by the time we air this podcast. One of the many advantages of working with a group of super smart scientists is that every time the news headlines scare or confuse us, we can go grab one of them to explain what's going on. David Wright is the co-director of the Global Security Program here at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He's a nationally known expert on the policies around nuclear weapons, missile defense systems, space weapons, and missile proliferation. He's literally a rocket scientist, and he's the person I run to whenever there's news on North Korea, like there is right now. David joined us to chat about North Korea's nuclear capabilities, the crucial historical context missing in the news stories, and how David and his colleagues rely on a little investigative journalism to figure out North Korea's missile program from thousands of miles away. David, welcome to Got Science. Can you start by bringing us up to speed on what's been happening since the beginning of the year? Uh, well, it's nice to be here. And yes, there has been a lot of stuff going on. North Korea has about eight different missiles either that it's producing or in deployment uh, or in, in development. And one of the things that it's trying to do is increase the range of those missiles. Uh, but the other thing that has become clear is it's also trying to practice using those in a conflict, and that's, that's something new we've seen just uh, recently. Now, a number of the tests they've done this year failed, but not all of them have, and, and so there have been a couple surprises. One is that we've seen a couple launches now of a new missile they've developed that has a range of about 800 miles. That's long enough for it to reach Japan. And it had an older missile of this kind, but the difference is this one has solid fuel, so it has the fuel preloaded in it. That's sort of the kind of thing you want to do if you're trying to think about using these missiles militarily, because if you have a liquid-fueled missile, you have to take to the place where you want to launch it, you then have to fuel it, and all that takes a while. It's visible. Uh, you could imagine being attacked, where a solid-fueled missile you can take to the site and launch almost immediately. So this is still a, a shortish-range missile, but the fact that they're going in that direction says something about where their technology is going, but also the kind of way they're thinking about using these. In March, it did a launch of uh, four missiles simultaneously, and these were old missiles that we'd seen them launch before, so this clearly wasn't a missile development issue as much as sort of training people to operate them the way you might operate them in an actual use. So again, when I say that uh, we're seeing things that seem to be going beyond just developing missiles and actually thinking about how to use them, that's one of them. 
Uh, and probably the biggest event was just 10 days ago when we saw them launch a new missile that they hadn't tested before. We'd seen it in a parade one time, uh, and that was a surprise in part because it had a much longer range than anything else that they've uh, tested. So, as I say, we see them moving forward both with different types of missiles, trying to increase the range, but also trying to apparently get practice actually using them. How do we know exactly what they have if we're not there on the ground? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, one of the good things about developing missiles is you have to do a flight test in the atmosphere. Um, the U.S. has uh, very good space-based sensors that can detect these, and so we know when they're testing. Japan, South Korea, and the United States all have uh, ships and sensors around, so they watch these things very closely from the ground as well. Uh, so most of what we know comes from their missile launches. In the last couple of years, North Korea has, I think, sort of played a game that I've seen them do before, which is uh, they do these big parades and they show us things that we haven't seen before. We don't know if they're real. We don't know if they're aspirational. And so people spend a lot of time scratching their heads and trying to figure that out. The, the missile that was fired about 10 days ago was one that we saw in a parade for the first time earlier this year. It was sort of a modification of something we'd seen before, which again, raises the question of whether the things we saw before were real, whether those were ideas they were playing around with, and this was the thing that was really in development. Uh, but they also showed us in the parade this year some really big canisters on trucks that looked like they would carry really big missiles. And of course, since they're canisters, you can't see what's inside them. So hmm. a lot of speculation. But we've seen that before in North Korea, where uh, they know they're being watched like hawks. And uh, sometimes to get our attention, they put things out in fields or they prepare a, you know, for a test, expecting, I think, that it's going to get a response. What do they have and how did they get them? So they originally got missiles from uh, the Soviet Union, short-range Scud missiles. Soviet Union sold those a lot of places. Um, they were able to, to get one sort of secondhand through Egypt. A lot of question then of whether they were able to actually sort of reverse engineer that and start to build copies of it or whether they were actually able to buy a lot of the pieces of that, either from the Soviet Union directly or elsewhere. And so they really cut their teeth on flying and trying to build things that other people had developed. But what we've seen in more recent years is that they have been more creative than that. First, what they were doing was taking components that they had gotten elsewhere, like uh, some of the engines for these short-range missiles and putting them together in ways that people hadn't put them together before to make longer-range missiles. Uh, the most recent test we saw back in, in uh, May 14th appears to have been a new engine that they've actually uh, developed based on what they've learned how to do over the years. So David, what you're describing sounds like missile collage to me. Uh, so it's funny you should say that. A friend of mine talks about it being a tinker toy system in the sense that they sort of look around, see what is available, and figure out how they can use those things to build something they want. Clearly, in the beginning, they were getting components from other countries, uh, mainly the Soviet Union, uh, and trying to put them together in ways that would work. More recently, it appears that they've been more capable of building components that they couldn't before. Uh, and to what extent uh, things are now really indigenous, is still sort of an open question, but there's just no doubt that, uh, you know, over the past 25 years, they've learned a lot about how to do this and that they're moving forward and that um, uh, eventually they'll um, be able to, to build long-range missiles on their own. So you don't know exactly what they have, but you glean all sorts of info from each new launch test. 
that helps us understand the situation from a science-based perspective. How do you actually do that? Uh, so I like to think of what I do as something like being an investigative reporter uh, armed with physics. Uh, and so what we do is, is basically take whatever information we have. Uh, typically, uh, after there's a launch, there's reports in the press that come out pretty quickly now because of all the, the ways of getting things out about where it splashed down, where it was launched from, and something about maybe the flight time or the altitude it went to, and a little more than that. But that's enough to allow us to start to piece together what the basic capability of the missile is. So, you know, the May 14th test was, was an interesting example where uh, the first reports came out and said it splashed down about 300, 400 miles from the launch site which is a pretty short range. But there was also in there a, a, a statement that the flight time was like 30 minutes, which is much too long for a short-range missile. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have a computer model that I, I use to model these things and started playing around with it and came to the odd conclusion that if to, both of those numbers were right, then it would have had to have flown up to about um, 1,500 miles altitude, so a very high short flight. And so I was scratching my head and I was you know, trying to figure this out when a reporter uh, sent me a message saying, uh, we're just being told by the South Koreans that this thing went above 1,500 miles altitude, does that make any sense? And so at that point, the whole thing fit together. Um, it was clear that the reason they did that was that they didn't want to overfly Japan. They could fly it very high and bring it down uh, in the Sea of Japan without overflying Japan. Uh, but based on that, I could then use my computer model to replicate the trajectory it actually flew and then figure out if it flew on a standard trajectory what the range would be. And so from that, we were able to tell that the range would be something like 3,000 miles. Wow. So a big step in terms of uh, what we've seen them do before, but that's you know, an example of how we can sort of piece together the, the data that's coming out and, and understand something pretty quickly. Now, for successful tests, uh, North Korea loves to release photos of these things, and that really gives us a wealth of information because all of a sudden you can see the structure of the missile uh, from the size. You can start to understand how much uh, fuel it has in it, which tells you something about how much you know, capability it's going to have, how much it weighs. By looking at the color of the plume that comes out of the back end, you can start to tell what the propellant is, and so that's one of the ways that we know that uh, some of the recent tests have been an advance to a new set of propellants that they haven't used before. You can even do things like if you have video, you can look at the uh, movement of the missile frame by frame and see how far it moves between frames and start to understand what the acceleration is. That starts to give you an idea of what thrust it has. So by doing all those things, you can start to get a pretty good idea, not only what the capability is, but what technology they must have used to, to get there. And then the last piece uh, that, that we're particularly interested in is uh, once you get a warhead up in space, you've got to bring it back down, and that requires a reentry vehicle that can deal with the heat as it comes back and slows down through the atmosphere. That was a problem that really befuddled um, the United States and Soviet Union back in the days of the space race, because initially when people calculated how much heat would be released when you slowed down a space capsule coming back, they weren't sure they could actually bring it back to Earth without it burning up. And so they worked very hard on this issue of, you know, how do you do that? Well, since then, they figured that out. But it's something that it's a, it's a hard enough problem that it takes some work. And so one of the questions we keep looking at is, what evidence do we have of uh, how far North Korea has gotten along that path? Can they find this information on the Internet, a missile recipe? 
They certainly have a leg up because people have done this before. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the things that were sort of cutting edge, you know, materials, uh, insulating materials, things like that, are now standard things that people use and they can get their hands on. You know, what I say is there's no doubt that North Korea could build a reentry vehicle that would withstand reentry, but it would like to do more than that because if you overbuild the reentry vehicle to make sure it'll work, then you're adding mass and that cuts down the range of the missile. Uh, if you make it really blunt so that it slows down high in the atmosphere, which reduces the heat, you get very, very poor accuracy. And so, so really what you'd like to do is you'd like to try and optimize it. You'd like to try and say, here's sort of what we can do that we have confidence we'll get to the ground, but still isn't overbuilt, isn't too heavy, and things like that. So that's, that's the real game at this point. Thought Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. For more information, go to ucsusa.org slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with David's analysis and commentary on North Korea's activities, you can find him on the All Things Nuclear blog. Go to allthingsnuclear.org. I'm back with Dr. David Wright. Can you set the historical context for us? Uh, people uh, generally know that uh, Germany was divided between the U.S. and Soviet Union after World War II, but people sometimes forget that Korea was also divided between uh, the U.S. and Soviet Union at the end of the war. The Soviet Union uh, occupied the northern part. Uh, in 1948, they wanted to uh, install somebody to run the new country of North Korea. Uh, and they picked a, a Korean who uh, had fought the Japanese occupation and had then fought in the, in the Soviet army, a guy who uh, took the name of, of Kim Il-sung, which meant Kim becoming the son, which I think is interesting because one of the things that he apparently learned when he was in the Soviet Union uh, was he learned about Stalin's cult of personality and apparently thought that was a great idea. Uh, and so he basically operated you know, as a leader in, in North Korea uh, as a cult of personality. And it's interesting if you look at some of the propaganda posters, both from that time and more recently, you'll see that. You'll see these sort of bigger-than-life images of him uh, leading troops in the military, um, out in the fields helping the farmers, and also surrounded by, you know, scads of adoring children. So you really get this uh, sense of uh, cult of personality, which was what he was trying to do. I think, you know, what's happened since that time is that uh, North Korea's uh, economy has, has really become much worse. I mean, up through the 1970s into the 1980s, because of the help they were getting from the Soviet Union, their economy actually outpaced the economy of South Korea. It began to stall then, and through the 1990s in particular, they not only had floods, which led to famine, but they uh, were really cut off from the outside world. The Soviet Union wasn't able to help them, and the economy has really become much worse. When did North Korea first start working on nuclear weapons? The North Korean program goes back to the 1980s. Uh, it built a small nuclear reactor, presumably with Soviet help, and so there was concern at the time because when you take the spent fuel out of a nuclear reactor, you can get plutonium out of it and you can use plutonium to make nuclear weapons. And so there was a concern at that point. There were discussions about getting international inspections on the reactor. Uh, North Korea sort of agreed to that but didn't really agree to it. Uh, and then in 1991, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the first President Bush pulled tactical nuclear weapons out of South Korea as part of his effort to sort of 
take a step back in the arms race. And in response, North Korea said that they would allow international inspectors in to look at their reactor. Uh, and interestingly, they also signed a declaration with South Korea for a non-nuclear Korean peninsula. And that's one of the things that, to this day, keeps coming up as you know the goal that both sides have formally talked about doing. And so the question is where that stands. So what happened? Well, so in 1992, inspectors who were in the country and doing uh, sampling uh, started to have evidence that, in fact, North Korea appeared to have taken fuel out of this reactor and pulled the plutonium out of it, despite the fact saying that it hadn't. At that point, there was a lot of concern in the international community about what North Korea was doing. North Korea was stonewalling, and it led to real concerns about war at that time. And on top of that, it was compounded by the fact that um, North Korea was, for the first time, starting to do test launches of a longer-range missile than, than it had tested before. It had had short-range Scud missiles from the Soviet Union before. This was the first missile that could reach Japan, so a range of about uh, 800 miles. And that was when I first got involved with this, was after its first successful test of that missile. There was a lot of questions about what it was, what technology it used, where it could lead, things like that. And, and so that's really when I first started trying to understand its missile program. So who was the leader at that time? At that point, it was uh, Kim Il-sung, still the person who had been the first leader of North Korea. So what happens next? So in June 1994, as I said, there was a lot of concern about uh, people being in the brink of war. Uh, Jimmy Carter, as a civilian, took a trip to North Korea, met with Kim Il-sung, uh, and convinced him to freeze his nuclear program and to start negotiations with the United States. So this was really a, you know, both a breakthrough and also a way to sort of tamp down uh, the problems that had, had been happening. And so with that, the Clinton administration started negotiations. That led to an agreement in 1994 called the Agreed Framework, under which North Korea agreed to shut down its nuclear reactor, to have inspectors in the country looking at its uh, nuclear fuel rods to make sure that it couldn't use them for nuclear weapons, to continue to have uh, discussions with the United States to try and you know, normalize relations, open up its economy, and things like that. Things are moving in a positive direction. Where did it all go wrong? Next time on the Got Science podcast. And now, our correspondent, Katie Love, with This Week in Science History. Take it away, Katie. This Week in Science History, we're traveling back to June 10th, 1952, when DuPont registered a trademark for that balloon bouquet staple, Mylar. While this strong polyester film has many uses beyond the balloons we are all familiar with, from emergency blankets to food packaging, it's actually balloons that makes this material so relevant to today's episode of Got Science. Well, balloons and missiles. It just so happens that mylar balloons provide a way to counter missile defense systems. These systems are intended to defend against attacks by ballistic missiles like those North Korea is developing. But here's the thing, missile defense systems can be fooled. And one of the ways to fool them? Mylar balloons. You see, the attacker could place dozens of uninflated mylar balloons around the nuclear warhead, so they could be later inflated with a small generator. Kind of like how a car airbag inflates, only slower. After the missile is launched, it would release dozens of the inflated balloons, all empty except for one, the one that contains the warhead. 
that balloon could be made indistinguishable from the empty ones to all the missile defense sensors. From ground-based radars, to the satellite-based infrared sensors, to the sensors on the interceptors themselves. So to defend against this tactic, the defense system would need to shoot every single balloon to prevent the warhead from getting through. But the attacker could deploy so many balloons that the defense would run out of interceptors. Basically, an incredibly complex missile defense system could be counteracted by what amounts to a child's toy, a Mylar balloon. I bet you never look at a balloon bouquet the same way again. That's it for this episode of Got Science. I want to thank my friend and colleague, Dr. David Wright. The second half of our conversation will air in two weeks. And don't forget, you can find David on allthingsnuclear.org. Our This Week in Science History segment was brought to you by Katie Love. Engineering and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Rich Hayes is our executive producer, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. See you next time 